Morning Church. Uh, the Bible reading today is taken from Acts 17, 16 to 34. Um, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands, as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, please keep your Bibles open as we look at today's passage together. Let me pray for us. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a good and sovereign ruler, that you created all things, and you're calling people to yourself in repentance and faith through Jesus Christ, who gives and offers eternal life. May that be something that we have hope in now and forever. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In the first century, Athens was an important and great city. It had uh, been so ever since the 5th century BC. It was the foremost Greek city-state, the birthplace of Socrates, the home of Plato's Academy and Aristotle's Lyceum. It was the Greek Empire's intellectual metropolis, rich in philosophical tradition, and its reputation was unrivaled throughout the world. It was the Oxford and Cambridge of England the Ivy League of the States, and I suppose the Melbourne University of Australia. In fact, it's still known today as the cradle of Western civilization and the birthplace of democracy. 
But it wasn't uh, just an intellectual hub. The Athenians were also very religious. Uh, this is what one commentator said about Athens in the first century. There were more gods in Athens than in all the rest of the country. And the Roman satirist hardly exaggerates when he says that it was easier to find a god there than a man. If you walked the streets and wandered down the laneways, you would have walked past temple after temple, shrine after shrine, statues and altars of gods littered throughout the entire city. Everywhere you look, you'd see images of Apollo, the city's patron, Jupiter, Venus, Mercury, Neptune, Diana, and many, many more. And because these gods were so revered by the Athenians, these statues weren't just made from stone and brass, but of gold and silver, ivory and marble, fashioned by the finest Greek sculptors of the day. And you'd see people worship them day after day, making sacrifices to them day after day. I don't know about you, but uh, if I was a tourist in Athens in the first century, I'd admire how aesthetically uh, magnificent the place was and how culturally sophisticated the people were. It'd be such an interesting place to visit, wouldn't it? Now last week, Paul, we saw, he began his second missionary journey. He wanted to uh, continue to preach in Asia Minor, but he was stopped by the Holy Spirit. Jesus had other things in mind. Jesus sent him to Europe instead. And so last week we saw the gospel go to Europe for the very first time, to Macedonia, modern-day Greece. Uh, and he ends up in Philippi, one of the major cities, where we read and heard of three conversion stories. From there, Paul goes to Thessalonica and then to Berea. He leaves Silas and Timothy there uh, with the young Christians and sets sail by himself to Athens. So when he gets to Athens, notice what he does. And notice what he notices. He doesn't admire how aesthetically pleasing the, 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 uh, the city of Athens is. He's not a tourist. He's not impressed by how culturally sophisticated they are. He's on a mission. Uh, look at verse 16. And look at what, how Paul responds and how Paul reacts when he arrives in the city. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens... He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now, we might not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, the god of beauty, but how many women are driven to eating disorders because of their obsessive concern about their body image? Or how many men take supplements and spend most of their free time in the gym to get that perfect body? Now, we might not physically make a sacrifice to Plutus, are the god of wealth. Uh, but when it comes to making money or climbing the corporate ladder, we perform a kind of child sacrifice as we neglect our families and our communities to keep up with the Joneses. As Tim Keller uh, puts it, in ancient times the deities were bloodthirsty and hard to appease. They still are. Traditional idol worship is still practiced in many places in the world. But internal idol worship that springs from our hearts has always been universal. And in case you're wondering what the definition of an idol is, is this, an idol is whatever we make more important than God. Whatever we want more than God himself. Money as our security, work as our pride, relationships as our identity, children as our hope. And so our mood goes up and down along with the share market. 
Our worth goes out the window when we're made redundant. Our self-esteem is crushed when we find ourselves single again. Our pride is crushed when our children go astray. You see, the life of idolatry doesn't find security in God's providence or identity in Jesus Christ or hope in his resurrection, but in the affairs of this world, which will perish and fade. And so as we look at today's passage and how Paul challenges the Athenians and the idol, idol worship, I wonder how might Paul the Apostle in his sermon today challenges our idols and the idols that we have in our hearts. Well, the Apostle Paul, after seeing what he sees as he strolls down the laneways and the streets of Athens, what does he do? Well, he engages the locals and reasons with them. He goes to the synagogues to preach and to the marketplace to speak. Uh, Have a look at verse 17. So he, that is the Apostle Paul, reasoned in the synagogues with both Jew and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happen to be there. As a result, Paul enters a debate with a group of philosophers in verse 18, and then they take him to Areopagus in verse 19. So from verse 18, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them said, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? Now, the Areopagus had jurisdiction over religion in the city. And so this was the perfect venue for Paul to convince them of the one and only true God. Now, notice how Paul begins his speech in verse 22. He tells them that when he came to the city, he walked around and he studied their idols. He got to know them and their religion. He got to know the city and the people. Verse 22, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. Now this is evangelism 101, isn't it? Not only must we know the gospel, we must also know the people we're reaching. So for example, if if we want to reach Muslims, there's no point just going to the library and reading about Islam or just reading the Quran. We need to meet Muslims, become their friends, love them, as friends and as people, and as we get to know them and to know their beliefs and to know their worldview, then we can engage them with the gospel. And that's exactly what Paul does. He doesn't alienate the uh, the Areopagus with his arrogance. He doesn't uh, allow his feelings of distress to get into the way of him loving them and sharing the gospel with them. And and we mustn't do that too. What Muslims do and believe might cause us great distress, But we shouldn't let that get in the way of loving them, getting to know them, and sharing the gospel with them. You see, Paul realizes that Athenians are very religious, but they're also very ignorant. That's what we're told in this passage. And so he tells them the truth, but he tells them the truth in love. Verse 23, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. It's a way to kind of essentially cover all your bases. If you're going to worship a, a dozen gods, then you, you might not know that you're worshiping all of them. And so just to be on the safe side, let's worship an unknown god and let's try to cover all our bases. And, and so Paul says to them, so you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. 
That is, you don't even know what you're worshipping or who you're worshipping, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Paul's going to resolve this ignorance, to address this ignorance, to help them to know what they don't know. The, 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 you see, the Athenians were worshipping God's left, right, and centre. And, and this altar to an unknown God, for us, as we read this, we might be thinking, well, this is all just made up. Surely they didn't do this, but this is the inscription. They found it. To an unknown God in Athens. See, Paul uses their ignorance as a launching pad to speak into their ignorance. He corrects their thinking and informs their minds. What they call as the unknown God, Paul declares to them, not, not another God to add on to your many gods, to your collection of gods. Now, notice how Paul speaks about it in verse 24. He doesn't go on to speak into their ignorance by preaching to them about a God, but the God, the one and only God. That is, all these gods are no gods at all. The, the God that you should be worshipping, there's only one God. And there is the God, the only God, that you now need to know about. And so he corrects the way they understand about God in four ways. And it's typical of how most people think about God throughout the ages. Now first, notice in verse 24, God, uh, but Paul says, God is the creator of everything. And notice the way in which Paul then addresses their issues and their concerns and the way they should be understanding God. He uses rationality and logic because they're philosophers. Verse 24, The God who made the world and everything is in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. See, the, the Greeks were great at building beautiful temples. The temple for this God and temple for that God. And it would have been extremely costly but for them, it felt necessary. But Paul tells them that the one and true God doesn't need a temple built for him by human hands. He doesn't need the protection of a building to keep him out of the rain. He's not looking for shelter like a homeless warrior, a wanderer. He can't be contained in a building like a person. He's the creator of all things. And second, verse 25, Paul then goes on to say, well, God sustains all life. Verse 25, he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. You see, God's not a pet who goes hungry and needs feeding. He doesn't need your offerings and your sacrifices to satisfy his needs. He sustains all life and he needs no one to sustain him. He's not dependent on you. He's, you're dependent on him. In fact, every breath you take should remind you of how God is sustaining your life. Uh, third, uh, God rules over all nations. So just in case these Athenians are thinking that Paul's now talking about a national God, like how there is the God of uh, Apollos for, for uh, Athens and Greek gods for Greek gods, and then now Paul's talking about Jewish gods for Jewish people. No, no, Paul makes it pretty clear here, verse 26, that the God he's talking about is not just the God of one nation or one city, but the God of everything, of heaven and earth, including Macedonia. Verse 26, From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth and be marked out. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. And the reason God did that was to be known by everyone, not just the Jews. Verse 27, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not very, not far from any one of us. 
And fourth, God is the father of human beings. Verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. You see, Paul's saying here that we're made in the image of God. God is not made in our image, that is, as a figment of our imagination. In other words, their knowledge of God was gross ignorance of God. Athens was the center of high learning. If anyone was to get God right, surely it'd be the Athenians and these philosophers. But despite all their knowledge, it all came down to philosophical speculation and not divine revelation. So it meant that they fashioned the God that was dependent on them, a God that they could shelter like a pet, a God that they could control through sacrifices and offerings, a God who wasn't sovereign over all the nations but limited to a nation, a God who evolved from human imagination and not made in the image of man. And yet 2,000 years later, since this time that Paul spoke these words, it's still the same today, isn't it? So many moons ago, when I was a uni student at Melbourne University, for my elective subjects, I chose uh, art subjects. Uh, and, and so one of the subjects I chose was God and the Natural Sciences in the Department of Philosophy. Uh, I chose the subject hoping that I would uh, grow in my knowledge and love of Jesus. My lecturer was a respected Anglican minister with a doctorate. My tutor was an atheist, but it wasn't my atheist tutor who had a problem with me being a Christian. It was my Anglican lecturer. For one of the essays, there were two essays that I had to write for this subject. One was worth 30%, one was worth 70%. The one that was worth 70% was one about how do we know God. And I wrote my essay about the need for Jesus, the need for God to reveal himself in the man Jesus for us to know Jesus and God so that we might know salvation. My Anglican lecturer refused to mark my essay. Everyone else got their essays back and their marks, and I got nothing, and I was wondering what's going on. It's because he had so fervently disagreed with me, he would fail me. And so he had to give it to the head of department to mark. You, you may have experienced similar things, where you're in a room full of learned and even religious people, but what you hear and see come from philosophical speculation and not divine revelation. We can only know God if he reveals himself, not through our own imagination. That was the problem with the Athenians back then and it's still the problem with us today. So don't believe the lies. We can't make God. God has made us. God doesn't depend on us. We depend on God. To think otherwise is to be ignorant of the highest degree. Because in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, Paul says. But now he commands everyone everywhere to repent, to turn back to God, for he has revealed himself most clearly in our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 30, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent if you're in the army and a general commanded you to do something, you will obey. When you're a student and your teacher commands you to do something, you'd obey. 
Here we have the God of all creation commanding us to repent. We must obey. You see, God's far bigger and greater than we could ever conceive and far holier and more righteous and a hater of sin more than we can ever imagine. And so Paul warns that the judgment day of God is coming. So verse 31, For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. You see, he has, he has, he has set a day. If that day was your wedding day, you wouldn't miss it for the world. If that day was your final exam, you wouldn't miss it for the world. If that day was the interview of a lifetime, you wouldn't miss it for the world. But this day that God has set is far more important than a wedding day or your final exams or an interview. For it doesn't determine where you, uh, who you spend the rest of your life with or your ATAR score or your career path. It will determine your eternal destiny. In a hundred years' time, in a thousand day time, years' time, that day of judgment is the day that will determine your eternal destiny. And this date has been set by God. It's locked in. It's in the calendar. We don't know the date, but God does. And on this day, God's appointed judge will right all wrongs. And so we must repent before it's too late. For his judgment will be universal. His judgment will be righteous. And his judgment will be definite. And whoever's not for him on that day will be against him. Whoever does not turn to him now... Before that day, would have turned against him on that day. And if there was any doubt about God's coming judgment, Paul proves it. He proves that the judgment day will come by pointing to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 31. He, that is God, has given proof of this, that this judgment day is coming to everyone by raising him from the dead, by raising Jesus from the dead. Now, as you know, last week uh, we voted um, uh, in the federal election and Anthony Albanese was sworn in as our 31st Prime Minister. Within 24 hours, he was on a plane over in Tokyo at the Quad Summit in Tokyo. He was there with President Biden, India's Prime Minister and Japanese leader Fumio Kishida. But as you would expect, Albanese rocks up to this meeting on the international platform. But not many people would know who Anthony Albanese is. Who is this guy? He's claiming to be the Prime Minister of Australia, but who is this guy? They would recognise Scott Morrison. If Scott Morrison got off that plane and went to this meeting, they would be like, hey, Scotty, good to see you again. But who's this Albanese? Who does he claim to be? And so what the organisers did was that they pinned the blue insignia onto his suit to prove that he is indeed a prime minister. See, you'll notice that all the other guys didn't have it because everyone recognised those other leaders, including Biden and so forth, but no one recognised Albanese. So he was given a sign, a symbol, proof that he is indeed the prime minister. So when the doors are open for the prime ministers to come in and the president is the head of states for these meetings, he'd be let in. And in a similar way, the Athenians might not know who Jesus is. Who's this Jesus that you're talking about? And Paul says, well, there's proof. Not, not with a blue insignia that, that, that's been pinned to his chest, but in the resurrection where he was dead and now he's alive. You see, they're Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, they're materialists. 
They didn't believe in the afterlife. For them, death was the end. But since Jesus has been raised from the dead, there's not only life beyond the grave, there's judgment after death. Just as Jesus' burial proves that he died, being seen proves that there is life after death. And there are plenty of witnesses of this fact. So if you wanted to, you can go to 1 Corinthians 15 in your own time. And you see that there were more than 500 eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. And, if, and if they, it was tried at court to prove whether Jesus did rise from the dead or not. And you had each and every one of these eyewitnesses uh, in the witness stand, people with no relation to each other, people from all different walks of life. You'd believe beyond reasonable doubt, yes, Jesus did rise from the dead. And just like it probably happened in Japan with Anthony Albanese as he's trying to go into the room to have these important meetings with the Quad, if anyone questioned whether he was Prime Minister, his staff would say, no, no, he is the Prime Minister. Penny Wong would say, no, no, he is the Prime Minister. He was just elected. He was just sworn in. No, no, he is Prime Minister. In fact, if any of us were asked, no matter who we, who, who we are voted for, we, we'd have to say, in all honesty, yes, he is our Prime Minister, whether we like him or not. You see... So it is with the resurrection of Jesus. The fact that he rose, the fact that he was seen, proves not only that there is life after death, but that the judgment day will come. Now, as you can imagine, the Areopagus would have been buzzing. They were, they, they've never heard of such things before. Paul only uses logic and reason to show the foolishness of their religious beliefs and philosophical speculation. He calls them to turn away from it all, from their God Aphrodite, from their God Apollos, uh, and turn to the one and true God. And as you expect, there are mixed responses. Verse 32, some sneered. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Others wanted to find out more, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council because some did believe and followed Paul. Verse 34, some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. So friends, the question is then for us, how will we respond? If we're a Christian, then let me encourage you to keep putting to death idols It was John Calvin, the great Protestant reformer, who said, The human heart is an idol factory. Every one of us from our mother's womb is an expert in inventing idols. We're experts in inventing idols. To to love things more than we love God. To put things that God has given us in the place of God himself. Things like food and comfort, success and wealth. They all matter to us so much more than God himself. And so today Paul is saying to us, repent and keep repenting. And so we must obey for the day of judgment will come. And as you share the gospel with friends and family, just as Paul did, you need to also expect that some will sneer. Some will want to find out more and others will obey and believe. But no matter the response, let's keep living in light of the judgment that's to come, calling as many to salvation in Jesus as possible. And if you don't yet know Jesus, then let me encourage you to read one of the Gospels, to meet him and get to know him, to make an informed decision.
Amén.